Some instructions are more important than others. If we're going to the shop and someone tells us to pick up some milk, if we forget then it's not a disaster. It might be mildly frustrating, but it can be fairly easily fixed. But other instructions are matters of life and death. The Battle of Trenton took place in, on Boxing Day in 1776 in New Jersey during the American War of Independence. And it resulted in a key victory for the Americans. But it shouldn't have, because uh, at five o'clock on Christmas Day, a spy had warned the British forces of what was coming, but the note was never opened. Uh, The next day, the British were caught unawares and defeated, and the note was found unopened in the coat pocket of their commander's dead body. Listening to and acting on the message was a matter of life and death. And we have a similar instruction here in Genesis 41 that we're going to look at this evening. And that is Pharaoh's message to his people as famine ravages their land. He tells them here in verse 55, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. We've heard horrifying stories from Ukrainian cities this week as their power supply has been cut off, as their water has been cut off. People have been starving. And so picture that as you think of the land of Egypt here as famine hits. And yet there's a way for every last one of those people to be saved. Verse 55. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. Whether the people listened to that command or not would be the difference between life and death. And it's that command of Pharaoh that I want us to think about this evening. But we want to look at it as something far more than just an historical instruction from an ancient crisis. We want to look at it as the words of God the Father spoken to those who see their desperate need. Telling us not go to Joseph, but go to Jesus. As we've been seeing the whole way through the Joseph story, Joseph's life is a picture of what Jesus' life would be. It's being foreshadowed here in the life of Joseph. The beloved son of his father, rejected by his brothers, sold into the hands of enemies, falsely accused, Punished for a crime he didn't commit. But now, as with Joseph in this chapter, he's exalted. He's raised up out of the pit and he's seated at the king's right hand. In verse 43, people are commanded to bow the knee before Joseph. Just as one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so... Against this whole background, I think we have good reason to read verse 55 on two levels. As on one level, simply a command from an Egyptian ruler to his people about how to preserve their physical lives. But on another level, as a command from God the Father to his people about how to find eternal life. And it's very interesting that... 
that Pharaoh's words here are very, very close to words spoken about Jesus in the New Testament. Maybe those words were even in your head as we read Genesis 41. The words that I'm thinking of were were spoken at Jesus' first miracle when he turned water into wine. They were spoken by his mother. Here in verse 55, Pharaoh says to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do. Uh, And John 2 verse 5, Mary uh, says the same thing of Jesus. Whatever he says to you, do. In fact, I think we're meant to see a connection between those two commands. Uh, The similarity between the statements is really striking, particularly as it is in the Greek version of the Old Testament that the apostles used. And so uh, this isn't me tonight trying to spiritualize something that that isn't actually already here. All I'm trying to do is to, to draw out a connection that I think the Bible itself wants us to make. You know, even if all we had is Pharaoh's words here in verse 55, and there, there was no New Testament equivalent, well, in light of the whole story of Joseph, I think we should still be seeing how they point to something greater. But the fact that in John's Gospel, we, we have pretty much the exact same words used of the Lord Jesus, I, I think it, it makes it unmistakable. And so that's our text this evening, Genesis 41, 55. Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. Taking those words as speaking ultimately of the true and better Joseph. We're going to look at these words under three headings tonight. Saying firstly that without Jesus we're in a desperate situation. Without Jesus we're in a desperate situation. People across Ukraine are in a desperate situation tonight. So were the people in Egypt in Joseph's day. But hard as it may be to believe, there's actually a worse situation that people can be in than the one we see unfolding on our TV screens at the moment. A worse situation than having your city shelled beyond recognition. A worse situation than being cut off from food, heat and water. And that is to be cut off from your creator. To be disconnected from the only source of life, hope and joy in the universe. And verse 55 here is addressed to people who know just how desperate their situation is. They don't need convinced of it. It's addressed to people who have reached the end of their own resources and who have perhaps done so for the first time in their lives. The land of Egypt was watered by the Nile. It's unlikely that any of its residents had ever had to worry about famine before. They had the Nile, they didn't need to worry. They'd always assumed that they would have had enough resources to cope. But now... What they thought had always, they thought would always be there for them, uh, turns out that it won't. Uh, the, the fertility of the land that they relied on was unraveling and drying up before their very eyes. And perhaps you too have reached the point where you've realised that you don't have enough resources to cope. 
The people or the things that you thought you could rely on to get you through a crisis have let you down. Or maybe you have felt a gnawing emptiness inside. Not the gnawing of physical hunger, but a gnawing spiritual hunger. A desire for something more than the material. A desire for something more than than simply to have your health. And you're beginning to realise your need of the one who said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And particularly when it comes to the fact that one day you will stand before God. Maybe you now have realised that, that one day each one of us will stand before God. And maybe you now realise that that's put you in a desperate situation because the good life that you once thought would be enough to make you right with God isn't actually going to cut it. Those in Ukraine without food, water, heat and power, but who are believers in Jesus Christ, are actually in a better position tonight than the richest person in the UK who doesn't know Jesus Christ. The word hell has been used a lot in the current crisis to to describe what people are experiencing, but... The real hell is far worse. The real hell is, is far worse than even the video that went round this week with, with bodies lying on the ground, with missing limbs and people screaming. And so when you're praying for Ukraine, remember not just to pray for physical safety and protection. Because even if all the hostilities stopped immediately, those who are still outside of Christ would be in terrible danger. But with the the hostilities ongoing and people's physical lives in constant danger, the need for them to get right with God is more urgent than ever. So firstly, tonight, without Jesus, we are in a, a desperate situation. And if by God's grace you've started to realize that, as the people in Egypt realize here, there is a way of escape, but there's only one way. And that brings us to our second point this evening, that there is only one way to be saved. There's only one way to be saved. What are the starving Egyptians to do? Well, there is only one thing they can do. And that is to do exactly what Pharaoh tells them and to go to Joseph. Imagine that some of the the Egyptians had thought, no, I want to try and escape this famine a different way. What would have happened? Well, they would have perished. There is only one way to survive the famine. There's only one way to be saved. And that is to go to Joseph. And in fact, it's not even that there's only one way for the Egyptians to to be saved, but people in other countries can be saved in other ways. The final verse of the chapter tells us, Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain. Because the famine was severe over all the earth. The whole earth is affected by this catastrophe. And we'll see next week just how unusual a thing that was. And in order for for anyone to be saved, there is only one thing to be done. And that is to go to Joseph. So here's a question. 
Was it narrow-minded for Pharaoh to say, go to Joseph? Was it narrow-minded for fathers to urge their sons to go to Joseph and buy grain rather than someone else? Well, not at all. It's not narrow-minded. It's not arrogant because there literally only is one way. And if there only is one way, it's not arrogant to tell people that. And it's the same with our salvation. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But people say to us, how how arrogant to say that your way is the only way. But there literally is only one way. To say that there's another way would be dishonest. Imagine someone in a far off country persuading their neighbour who was all set to go to Egypt. No, you don't want to go to Egypt. Go, go somewhere else. Go, go to this other place and you'll be able to get, get grain there. Would that be a loving thing to do? Well, that would have been a terrible thing to do. Because if there is only one way, to tell someone to go to a different way is to lead them astray. Because if that neighbour does go off to that other country then no matter how, how sincere they may be as they go on that journey, they're not going to find what they need. Their, their sincerity doesn't matter. Their, their faith doesn't matter if their faith is wrongly placed because they're not going to find what they need if they don't go to Joseph. And by the way, look, look who it is that tells everyone to go to Joseph. It's Pharaoh It's the great king. It's the ruler over the whole land. And if anyone should know, it's him. If anyone should know how the Egyptians can be saved, well, surely it is uh, the king of Egypt. And who is it that tells people to go to Jesus? It's God the Father. He's the one who has exalted the Lord Jesus And set his name above all names. Philippians 2 verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Acts 17.31 says of God the Father, He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Who is Joseph? He is a man who Pharaoh has appointed. There is no other. Who is Jesus? He is, in the words of Acts 17, a man who God has appointed. He is more than a man, but he is a man who God has appointed. And imagine you were to stand before God hoping to get into heaven. And he says to you, well, well, why should I let you in? You say, well, I wasn't as bad as the people around me. Uh, I helped people out. I I went to church. I gave to charity. But then he asks you, well, did you go to Jesus? Are you going to tell God that you didn't do the one thing that he said you must do in order to be saved? And still hope to get into heaven. I must warn you tonight that you don't want to have to deal with God if you don't come to him through Jesus.
you do not want to have to deal with God if you don't come to him through Jesus. Martin Luther used to warn that we could never approach an absolute God. Uh, and by that he meant a God he didn't reveal himself in Christ. Luther said the absolute God is like an iron wall against which we cannot bump without destroying ourselves. When all believers talk about God, that's the sort of God they're talking about. They, they know nothing of, of the promises of God, of coming to him through Christ. But rather the God we come to is a God who, who in Luther's words is clothed and revealed in his promises and word. Which all point to Christ. And this God, Luther says, clothed in such a kind appearance. This God we can grasp and look at with joy and trust. We can look at God tonight with joy and trust, but only because we come to him through Jesus. Someone could turn up in Egypt, come to to the door of Pharaoh himself and say, I'm here to buy grain. But Pharaoh would say, I'm not going to give you grain unless you go to Jesus. There is grain enough for you, but you must go to Jesus Someone shared a quote from the Puritan Stephen Charnock the other day. Charnock wrote the definitive book on the attributes of God. There's a new version of it coming out this year. Two volumes, almost 2,000 pages. And interestingly for us, they're including in it the biographical article of Charnock written by Stranar Minister William Symington back in the day. But anyway, the quote from the book that I saw this week began with these words. Nothing of God looks terrible in Christ to a believer. Nothing of God looks terrible in Christ to a believer. And that's great news for us. But do you see what it's also saying? It's saying that outside of Christ to the unbeliever, God does look terrible. He looks dreadful. He looks fearful. Terrible in the true sense of of inducing terror. You do not want to try and approach God other than through Jesus Christ. The Father tells us, go to Jesus, because if we went directly to him, we'd be burned up. Roman Catholicism gets it partly right with their sense that we can't approach God directly. Now, they're wrong in their conclusion that we should instead come through saints and angels and Mary. But they're right that we can't approach God directly. But the answer isn't to try and come to God through saints. The answer is to come to him through the one he has appointed as our mediator, through his son. And if we do that, then everything changes. To give you the rest of the charna quote, nothing of God looks terrible to a believer. The sun is risen, shadows are vanished. God walks upon the battlements of love. Justice has left its sting in the Saviour's side. The law is disarmed. His heart is open. I love that last bit. Justice has left its sting in the Saviour's side. So there's no more sting for you. The law is disarmed. You do not need to fear the curse of the law. His heart is open to you. If you come through Christ. 
And so actually what makes all the difference in the world isn't whether we come to God or whether we don't come to God. What makes all the difference in the world is whether we come to God in the way he has appointed. In the way through which justice loses its sting and the law is disarmed. Or if we try and come to God on our own terms and run smack into an iron wall and destroy ourselves. We can flesh out that image of the law being disarmed. Uh, Think of the difference it would make approaching a bomb knowing that the bomb had been disarmed or not. It makes all the difference in the world. If the bomb has been disarmed, a child can play on it without fear. But if the bomb hasn't been disarmed, we can't go near it. But Christ disarms the law of God. The law for us, it's still a rule of life. Uh, but, it, but we will not be condemned by it. And so that's our second point this evening. There is only one way to be saved. And that is to come to God through Jesus Christ. After all, as Jesus himself said, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In other words, it's only through Jesus Christ that we can know the only true God. And to know him is to have eternal life. Eternal life, not simply something we will experience one day, but something that begins even now. So, without Jesus, we're in a desperate situation. There is only one way to be saved. Thirdly, Finally and joyfully, Jesus has enough resources for the whole world. Jesus has enough resources for the whole world. The more people are in need of something, the more likely it is that supplies are going to run dry. We saw that here during lockdown and we see it in Ukraine at the moment. So the question isn't simply does the thing that I need exist but is it going to be possible for me to get any? You can imagine people hearing that there's grain in Egypt but surely they they would also have been wondering well will there be any left by the time I get there? Maybe there's enough for those in Egypt maybe there's grain for those who are well connected but will there be any for And nobody like me. But they need not have worried. Because during those seven years of plenty, Joseph has been storing up grain. Look at verse 49. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Who is Joseph? Joseph is a saviour who has enough provision for his people and enough provision for the whole world. And so is Jesus. Joseph provides grain for his people, but what does Jesus provide for us? What has he stored up for us? Well, We could give two answers to that question because Jesus provides forgiveness for us. Firstly, he takes away our sin. He pays the debt that we could never pay. As Reformed Christians, we believe in something called limited atonement. 
that means that we believe that on the cross Jesus only paid the price for the sins of his people. As the angel told told the other Joseph married to Mary, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. And so we believe that Jesus' atonement is limited in intent, that he only ever meant to save a particular number of people, not a small number of people, but but in the words of the book of Revelation, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples and languages. But we don't believe that Jesus' atonement was limited in value. As if the price he paid was only enough to save a certain number of people. The, the Wigton martyrs, uh, Margaret Wilson, who, who was martyred in the Solway Firth at the age of 18. Her, her father paid money to, to, to ransom, to, to redeem her younger sister, but he couldn't afford to pay for both of them. But, but it's not like that with Jesus. It's not as if he only paid enough to save a certain number of people. That's why many people would rather use a term like definite atonement other than limited atonement. So Jesus provides atonement for us. He, he provides covering for our sins. But we need something other than to have our sins forgiven. We absolutely need our sins forgiven. But that in and of itself isn't enough. Maybe that sounds strange to say. But if all we had was our sins forgiven. That wouldn't actually be enough for us to get into heaven. Boys and girls, we need our sins forgiven. But if we just have our sins forgiven, that's, that's not enough for us to get into heaven. And that's because if Jesus only forgave our sins, it would just leave us back at square one. But we would still need to live a life that was good enough to make it into heaven, which none of us can do. We would need to live a life of perfect obedience. And so Jesus provides us with something else. He doesn't just give us forgiveness, but he gives us righteousness. When Jesus obeyed God's law, he did it in our place. And that perfect obedience of his is counted as ours. The first half of the book of Romans, which, which we've looked at together, can be summarised under two headings. The first three chapters talk about mankind's lack of righteousness, whereas chapters 4 to 8 talk about God's provision of righteousness. It's probably a good two-point gospel outline mankind's lack of righteousness but then God's provision of righteousness and so whereas Joseph stored up grain for seven years so Christ stored up righteousness for 33 years interesting verse 46 Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt so Jesus in a sense he came to when he came to earth he went out from the presence of God and he came and he he went through the land to store up righteousness when the Egyptians realize that they have no grain they go to Joseph 
And when we realise that we have no righteousness, that, that all our, our righteousness is like filthy rags, we can go to Jesus and receive a righteousness not our own. One of the, the names of Jesus, as is prophesied in Jeremiah, is the Lord our righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. You might have read, if you've read in the Gospels, a parable Jesus tells of, of someone who's not allowed into a wedding because he's not wearing the right clothes. Well, what, what's that all about? It seems a bit of a, an unusual parable. Is it telling us that, that we won't get into heaven unless we're dressed properly? Well, in a sense... Because it's telling us that we must be covered in the righteousness of Christ. It's not talking about, about the actual clothing we wear. But we must have Jesus' righteousness put over us like a robe. As Robert Murray McShane once put it in a poem. When I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty, not my own. That's what the righteousness of Christ means for us. It means we can stand before God's throne, dressed in beauty, not our own. And as the poem goes on to say, Then, Lord, shall I fully know, but not till then, how much I owe. Jesus has enough resources for the whole world. The supply of his righteousness isn't going to run dry. And so that tells us that if the whole world won't be saved, it's not because there's not enough provision, but it's because people will and do refuse the provision that's offered or because they're not told about it. But may that not be anyone hearing these words. Without Jesus, we're in a desperate situation. There is only one way to be saved. And Jesus has enough resources, not just for a select few, but for the whole world. There is no lack in him. So have you responded to the Father's command? Go to Jesus. What he says to you, do. And what does he say to you? What are his first words in Mark's gospel? Repent and believe in the gospel. Put your trust in him. There is no other way. But maybe you have put your trust in Jesus today, maybe very recently or, or maybe a long time ago, but you have doubts. You wonder, will he accept me? Yes, I, I've believed in Jesus, I, I'm trusting in Jesus, but, but, but I've messed up so many times. that Other Christians round about me, their lives are better than mine. They have it together, I don't. Will Jesus accept me? Will God accept me? But if you're clothed in Jesus' righteousness, he will. Uh, there is uh, an abundance of righteousness. You are fully covered. And maybe you've done that a, a long time ago, but you've maybe lost a sense of the wonder of it, a sense of the danger of what you've been saved from, or of the amazing provision that the Lord Jesus has laid up for you. Well, if so, may God help us recapture that tonight, knowing that it's only when this passing world is done that we will grasp it fully. 
When I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty, not my own, when I see thee as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. Amen. Well, we'll respond and praise our gracious God tonight, singing Psalm 36. Psalm 36, the closing verses. Psalm 36, verse 6 to the end on page 70. Psalm 36, 6 to the end. Singing in verse 6 of God's preserving grace, how those in Egypt were preserved from disaster and, and we can sing thinking of the righteousness of Christ how precious God your grace and then we sing in verse 7 of what God has provided for us from rich abundance of your house they'll be well satisfied the river full of your delight will drink to them provide and and from his rich abundance he provides us with righteousness verse 8 because the fountain filled with life can only with you can only be and in the purest light of yours we clearly light will see uh, praising God for the richness of his provision uh, for his abundant provision of righteousness for us uh, that there is no lack that that fountain will never run dry so Psalm 36 6 to the end we'll stand and sing praise <laughs>